After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. Everybody, this is Raghu Marcus with Mind Rolling, back for another edition. And uh, before I introduce uh, this podcast, I do want to mention that we have this wonderful online retreat. And this is my other hat as director of Love, Serve, Remember Foundation and the retreats that we have in Maui. And we're going to live stream this retreat coming up May 3rd, and uh, it's May 3rd, 4th, 5th. Uh, we've got Anne Lamott coming. We've got uh, Robert Thurman, amazing Robert, and of course, Ram Das, Krishna Das, myself, and uh, Duncan Trussell will be there. And uh, so it's free. Just go to ramdas.org and hit the top banner there, click on it, and it'll take you to give your email address, and then you'll be automatically enrolled. And you'll be able to, uh, you'll get an email, and you'll be able to uh, stream the uh, the live retreat, and it'll be available to you. So if you, if you can't do it at that time, you'll be able to do it whenever you want to do it. Okay, so that's going on. Also, uh, hey, there's a great book, also a link on the homepage of Ramdas.org that we just put out, Changing Lenses, which is all of Ramdas's fantastic stories that he's used in, uh, teaching stories that he's used in lectures over many years. Uh, so it's a sweet, sweet book. Changing Lenses, okay. What else? Is there any other advertisements? Well, just to remember 1440.org because 1440 Multiversity, many of the great, uh, many, some of the great uh, chats that I've had recently have come from people who have done these wonderful retreats, workshops over 1440. Go check it out, 1440.org. And uh, so this podcast is actually taken from the last retreat we had in Maui, uh, which featured Jack Cornfield, Sharon Salzberg, and Joseph Goldstein together for the first time, and I got them into my live podcast that I do at the end of the retreat, the last day of the retreat. Uh, and uh, that, I got to tell you, I mean, these people have been so elemental in my own path for all of these years, both as teachers and friends, uh, 
and what they have done bringing Vipassana back to this to the West, to this country, particularly with uh, IMS that uh, Sharon and, and Joseph teach at and Spirit Rock where Jack teaches. It's just, uh, it's, it's an offering that has been so substantial for so many people that I was like, oh boy, I'm going to have them all to myself. And I did. And we had this great, uh, great, great chat. Uh, we talked about many different things. Generosity certainly was a primary factor there. And, and who had been more generous, as I just said, than these guys. Uh, at the end, I thought to myself, why don't I, we can do a little meditation. So, you know, I always like to do three of the best meditation teachers in the country, right? That would be uh, very smart of me. Uh, so, and then I thought, wow, why don't we do a, like a round robin meditation thing? So I said that jokingly. Okay, so Jack, you start off, and then we'll we'll go to you know Joseph and Sharon, something like that. Not thinking for a second they would do it, and Jack said, "Okay, here we go." And they seamlessly did a three-part meditation that was like of one fabric. It was just fantastic. Okay that they just did it impromptu like that, which is why they are such great teachers. Okay, I know I'm being like goo-goo for these guys, but uh, I really do feel that way. I really do. And uh, blessed to have been able to spend the kind of time over the years with them that, uh, that I have, that we have, and how close the, uh, you know, they are to uh, Ram Das and Krishna Das as well. So... Without uh, further adieu, so here is Sharon Salzberg, Joseph Goldstein, and Jack Cornfield at the Maui retreat in December. And uh, for those of you who are listening, uh, there's a beautiful video of this too on YouTube, right? We put all of our podcasts up on YouTube as well. So go catch them there. And. Uh, and go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash MindRolling. We'll have all the show notes and everything else that you'd need to link up to these guys' books. And this is MindRolling. I am, of course, extraordinarily fortunate to be doing podcasts and, generally speaking, being able to meet extraordinary people. And these people that are on the stage here with us, Sharon, Joseph, and Jack, they more than qualify for that extraordinary. Uh, but my opportunity here to have them all in one place at one time, I mean, we've done podcasts together over the years individually, but not this. So I'm pretty happy about that. Yeah. So welcome, Sharon, Joseph, and Jack. Um, there, we've been doing a little bit of talking about how we all met and uh, back in the day and in Bodh Gaya. I actually wasn't there on the first Bodh Gaya trip. I was there on the second. 
and uh, but I met everyone around the same time, and the, the you know those stories of being young and meeting up and being and these people being as committed as they were is is uh, very very special, and I I was wondering and I wanted to talk to you know at least a couple of you about what it is that gave that motivation and drive towards really searching inside and, and particularly using meditation as a central practice uh, for you. I mean, I remember when I was a teenager, I was so unhappy until I found, I mean, it was uh, music for me. And music was the thing that opened me up, okay, there's another dimension, and then, of course, psychedelics. But it was a tremendous unhappiness that I remember that was, was a, a motivating force to try something else. So you're sitting right here. Tell me, what is it that when you were young, and I mean young, that started the kind of motivations that if you look back now, you can see, okay, that's, that led to this. How far back do you want to go? <laughs> All the way. If you can go back to your previous lifetime, we'll take it. So when I was a young kid, I had this <clears throat> uh, terrible temper. And I would have these temper outbursts. You know, seven, eight, nine, ten. Um, making myself miserable and making everyone around me miserable. And then somewhere around 11, I had just had one of these explosive outbursts. But something happened at that moment, and it was my first internal meditation instruction, which of course I didn't cast in that light at that time. But I remember saying to myself, at that time, I was Joey, not Joseph. <laughs> I said, Joey, count to 10. Just count to 10 before exploding. And amazingly, it worked. You know, and just to create a little bit of space between the impulse and the action, so it was my very first glimpse of the possibility that I could actually work with my mind, even though I didn't frame it in that language at that age. But that's what really happened, and it's, it really helped me a lot. Um, then, years later, I was at college studying philosophy and taking a course in uh, the Eastern philosophy. We were studying the Bhagavad Gita. And again, I was... I think a sophomore then knew nothing about any of this. You know, mindfulness was not even in the lexicon at those years. So reading uh, the Bhagavad Gita, there was one line in it, which again just kind of captured my imagination, even though I barely understood what it meant. But something resonated really deeply. And the line was, act without attachment to the fruit of the action. You know, 
And again, a sophomore in college, <laughs> what does that mean? But it meant something to me, even though I didn't know what it meant. Uh, so it's just the beginning of an opening to something more. Then after college, I went into the Peace Corps uh, in Thailand, and there was some, uh, an Indian monk and an English monk having a class for Westerners in Buddhism. Uh, and I didn't really know anything about the Buddhist teachings or meditation, but I'd studied philosophy at college, and so I was just very interested in the philosophy, interested in the mind. But I went to these discussion groups and I asked so many questions in these groups that people stopped coming. <laughs> and I'm sure you've been in groups like that with that kind of person. <laughs> so out of some desperation, I think the monks said, why don't you try meditating? <laughs> it was very exotic. I was 20, 21 years old, didn't know anything about any of this. Here I was in the Far East. So it was all very, just exotic, you know. So he gave me the very simple instructions of just watching the breath. Uh, I get all my paraphernalia together to sit, and I set my alarm clock for five minutes, you know, because I didn't want to sit too long. But something happened in that first five minutes, and it was not a great enlightenment experience. But what happened was, and it was really revelatory, even in that first five minutes, it showed me that there was a way to look into the mind as well as looking out through it. So it was like turning in place. And to see that there was a methodology for doing that, that there was actually a way to systematically look into the mind, I was so excited. I was so excited that I started inviting my friends over to watch me meditate. <laughs> and I'm still doing it, really. <laughs> right on. So thank you all for coming. <laughs> and now we can spend the next half hour. <laughs> watching me meditate. <laughs> was that Nagasena? Was that was the monk Nagasena? Uh, yeah. Do you remember? Yeah. 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 Uh, and so that was really the beginning and, and really the motivating energy over all these years. Of course, suffering has been involved, but that was not the main motivation. The main motivation was just this incredible interest in the mind. And just for those of you, you know, who may not be primarily from the Buddhist world, mind, the term mind in Buddhism refers to heart-mind. So it's not like mind in the Western sense as separate from the heart. So when you use the word mind, it means the heart, or the heart-mind. And it's just the most amazing thing to explore and discover, and it's, it's fueled a lifetime of practice. But. I also, you talk about anger, and you talked about being a child, and just say, hey, let's just count. Right? Took that kind of an action. I also was very angry when I was younger. I mean, still dealing with it all. 
I acted out. I didn't go, oh, okay, maybe I got to count. See, so there's a little karmic thing there. Uh, that's something we should talk about a little bit more at some point here. Jack, what about you? Well, there are all kinds of causes and conditions, of course. Um, dropping acid in Haight-Ashbury. Um, in the summer of love, that had something to do with it. Um, and going to the Psychedelic Information Society on Bow Street in Cambridge, Lisa Bieberman, who was there, and you go up these stairs, and she'd open the fridge and pull out a little vial and then a thing of sugar cubes and say, how many people do you want to turn on? You know, and here you go. So that affected me. Um, I, it was some combination. Um, I came from a lot of family pain. My father was a um, scientist, uh, in certain ways quite brilliant, but also quite disturbed and violent and um, unpredictable. And he would beat my mother quite a lot. Um, and she kept saying she was going to leave, but she had four kids and didn't know what to do. And he was a, really a tyrant with us as well. And um, there I was in, at Dartmouth studying um, probably mostly pre-med, different kinds of sciences, doing organic chemistry and various things. And then I signed up for a class with this wonderful old professor, Dr. Wingsit Chan, who'd come up from Harvard um, to start to teach Asian studies there. And he would sit sometimes cross-legged on the desk and talk about Lao Tzu and the Buddha and how there was suffering. And there was a cause and there was an end to it. And I, my eyes got wide, there's an end to it? Um, I got really interested and ended up wanting to study that because it was what I needed in some fashion. Um, and so I asked the Peace Corps when I graduated to send me to a Buddhist country and followed in Joseph's footsteps. I got there just as Joseph was finishing his Peace Corps. I got there in 67 and you were just finishing 65 to 67. And I asked them to send me, you know, out in some remote area thinking I would find where there are those old kind of Zen masters that you read about, you know. And it turned out there were. Um, and uh, I remember one of the things that happened when I first went into the monastery to see Ajahn Chah. Um, I'd met him through this, the, his first Western disciple, um, a guy now named, known as Ajahn Sumedho. And um, I told him I wanted to come and be a monk. And when I arrived at his monastery, he looked at me and he said, I hope you're not afraid to suffer. I don't know, that's a funny greeting, you know, welcome, I hope you're not afraid to suffer. Um, and then he smiled, he said, there's two kinds of suffering. He said, the kind you run from that follows you everywhere, and the, time, the kind you turn around and face um, so that you find that in you which is beyond the suffering, that which is free in the face of anything. And if you're interested in that, you're welcome, come in. Um, and he was one of the most warm-hearted and wise and amazing people. Um, and like Joseph, uh, Sharon likes to say, even when we started um, Insight Meditation Society and started teaching, and I was 29, 28, 29, Joseph a year older, and 
Sharon, you were 21, right? I was 23 when we started. I was 21 when I started teaching. Yeah. I was 23 when we started She's, IMS. She says we did it all without adult supervision, basically, <laughs> is her line. Um, but there's some way I felt very young, and at the same time, it felt quite familiar. Like, I knew this somewhere in me, whether I'd done it before, I now feel like. It felt all very familiar, and I said, I'm home, I'm in the right place to be. Um, and with all the struggles and the difficulties in it, it still felt like there was nowhere else on earth I wanted to be. And that's probably true for Sharon and Joseph once you started to practice. Yeah. Sharon, considering we were just talking about suffering, and when you were young, you went through quite a bit of it. Mm -hmm. And I have to think that that alone was a tremendous motivator. And I know, uh, well, tell a story a little bit of, of going f from that kind of suffering and then the discovery you made when you went to school. Well, I, uh, I wrote this book once called Faith, and in it, which is sort of like my spiritual autobiography. And so I thought about my life a lot in the writing of it. And I, I realized that by the time I went to college, which I did at age 16, I had lived in five different family configurations, each of which had ended because someone died or there was some <coughs> tremendous trauma or something like that. So, um, and my family, like many families, uh, surrounded everything with a kind of strange sort of silence, like nobody ever talked about anything. And so I didn't really know what to do with all of those feelings inside of me. And true, it was, I went to State University of New York at Buffalo, uh, where Mirabai was a TA. And uh, I took an Asian philosophy class in my sophomore year. And as far as I can remember looking back, it seemed like happenstance, you know. I mean, it was in the air for sure, but I looked at the schedule, and I thought, oh, that's convenient, it's Tuesday, I'll do that. And the course totally changed my life um, in two major ways. One was, there was the Buddha, for one, saying right out loud, which I knew damn well to be true, which is that there's suffering in life. The, the accompanying insight is, it's not just you. It's not unnatural. It's not some kind of aberration. This is a part of life. And if anything, we should be finding ourselves in one another not feeling so isolated and alone. So that was part of it. And then I heard there was something you could do about the suffering in life, not the suffering of circumstance, but how you hold it. You know, are you in isolation or are you with a sense of connection? Are you um, bitter and angry or do you have compassion? You know, there are many, many possibilities. And I heard that and the possibilities were held in these methods called meditation. So, the theory was that if you practiced meditation, you could change your life. You could be a lot happier. So I looked around Buffalo, and I didn't see it anywhere. Now it's probably everywhere. I'm going back this year. We really I haven't been back in all these years. Um, and the university had an independent study program where if you created a project that they liked, you could go anywhere in the world for a year, theoretically for a year and then come back and do your final year. So I created a project. I said, I want to go to India and study Buddhist meditation. And they said, okay. So off I went. And it was there that that famous 
famous sitting happened at Bodh Gaya, where Ramdas, when he was in India, and there was a, a number of other Westerners that started to gather, just going back the second time in the fall of 1970. And I believe Bhagavan Das said to somebody, if not Ramdas, oh yeah, there's a Vipassana course, go to Bodh Gaya. And Ramdas could not find Maharaji in that moment. That's an interesting thing, right, Ramdas? When you think about it, he wasn't available then, so everybody had to go study Vipassana, do this ex these ex three in a row extensive courses, and meet these three people. That's pretty extraordinary, actually, actually when just, I think. Just to correct the record. Two. It's two. It's two. <laughs> Jack was, was in, in I was Thailand. in Thailand. <laughs> I was in Thailand at the time. Did you ever go to Bodh Gaya? And yes, but not in, not, not until then. about five years later, not until uh -huh. 1976. Oh, really? Huh. Around that time, the three of them <laughs> met Ramdas and others of us, and uh, so. And there's been a, a, a fun jousting going on all this time for all of these decades around the Buddhist practice and the bhakti practice around soul and around Buddha mind. So what, what was the attraction here for you guys to get mixed up with the bhakti friends as you did? What pulled you? And what pulled you to bring me to meet Munindra? I still don't know what happened there. You know me from Adam. Yeah, well, just talk about where you see, you know, interconnection with it and so on. Well, in a way, there are two different questions. One, what, what attracted uh, me and perhaps Sharon and others to uh, commingle. Uh, <laughs> was that these people were a lot of fun. <laughs> you know, and it's quite amazing from just those very early years in Bulgaria, uh, we've established lifelong friendships. You know, and you probably maybe have similar experiences where there's some situations or experiences early in life where the connections are just so deep that they last a lifetime, even if, you know, you're not with these people all the time. But it's like there's something so powerful that's shared that the bond, is, the bond of friendship just is very enduring and, and deep. So that was one aspect. And the other, even though like in the Buddhist teachings that mostly we've been involved in, uh, doesn't particularly use the language of bhakti, uh, but I was just speaking to Ramdas uh, yesterday or the day before, uh, and I said, just especially in being here, you know, in this kind of particular mix, uh, I feel like I'm a bhakti of emptiness. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a devotee of emptiness. <laughs> so it's the same, it's actually the same inner feeling, you know, and it's just the vocabulary to describe the object of it all may differ, and maybe different symbols of what 
uh, is represented. But it's that same quality of devotion to the, you could say, to the Dharma, to emptiness, to Maharaji. In some way, it feels like it's all the same thing, even though the vocabulary is different. Yeah, yeah that's great, great. Jack, you want to comment on so, that? So, yeah, I remember the first chanting that I heard was in 1964-65 when Allen Ginsberg, who later became a friend, and um, Peter Orlovsky came to Dartmouth College in the winter um, to read poetry. And Allen was already famous for Howell and so forth. Um, and in, in the winter, Dartmouth, there's nothing to do, so snowy, so everybody came. And here they were, these two gay guys sitting on the stage, sometimes holding hands. Peter had his long braid and so forth. And Dartmouth at that time, may still be, was very conservative and very homophobic. And um, so it was a kind of weird scene. And Alan looked out and he said, well, I can't really read yet. Um, I think we have to do some chanting um, to dispel the demons and the evil spirits first. Okay. So he and Peter, and he had a sort of droning on voice. He didn't have a great voice, but they're doing Hare Krishna, Hare Rama before it was on the street corners for like 20 or 30 minutes, droning on and on. And as they went on and on, people just started to leave, you know, because it was so... And after about half an hour, he stopped, he looked, and he said, well, now that the evil spirits are gone, we can read. <laughs> we can read. <laughs> so I saw the power of bhakti right there. But, uh, <laughs> but then I went to a Dharma festival with Ramdas when I came back. I loved being a monk. Um, there was something so beautiful about bowing and going to places like the Shwedagon in Burma, which is in the center of Rangoon, and it's kind of the holy place of Burma. Um, and whatever devotion you might feel in the Hindu tradition, which is magnificent, there's an equivalent to that devotion in the Buddhist world. In fact, most of the Buddhism in Thailand and Burma, so forth, is really devotional practice. And it was so moving, and I'd been meditating in a retreat. I came after doing a retreat, silent retreat for a year, for 15 months, I was just silent. And then I was walking around the Shwedagon and someone said, inside is the walking stick and some hairs from the head of the Buddha. And I had these thrills that ran through my body. Um, and people were prostrating and, and chanting. And it, it, there was a kind of magnificence in that devotion that carried me into a stream that I felt part of for, uh, you know, for lifetimes. And then meeting Ramdas and going to Dharma festivals and things like that, um, there was such joy um, and such openness of heart to say, come and join in this stream of awakening. It wasn't like a grim duty. It was your birthright. It was it's gorgeous. And I felt like, oh, I want to I get on this train. I want to go. And so here we are. Wonderful. Well... Now, you have for many years now been teaching, particularly, of course, here, but also with Krishnadas doing, and he does chant, and you, talk, you give a talk and so on, and yeah, how are you getting <laughs> so comfy? What are you doing here? <laughs> um, 
Well, some of it, of course, is what Joseph said. These are lifelong friendships. And I would, uh, there's some people I, I, I almost have the kind of discipline. I say, never say no when they offer you an opportunity. You know, when they say, you know, you want to do this together, you just say yes. So, uh, it's a little dangerous thing to say because some of you might be in the room and I'm really busy, <laughs> you know. But uh, some of you might even be on stage. Uh, but the first, Jack made me think of the first time I ever heard chanting, which was when I was in college. Which of course, I went when I was very young. And um, I was lying in bed and my roommate said... Uh, you want to hear this album, because, you know, older age and album was all you had. And it was hair, the musical hair. And when they got to Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, which was a chant, I also, I was filled with bliss. I'd never experienced anything like that before in my life. And it was so interesting, because just a few years ago, someone took me to the Broadway play, both off-Broadway and then on-Broadway. And what I hadn't remembered at all was that there was a Buddhist chant in there, oh, money put me home, which didn't hit me at all. But it was like that one thing that was, that was so amazing. So, of course, my particular uh, corner of uh, Buddhist teaching is love, is loving kindness. And so uh, there's, there's a kind of match there um, that, that's also very powerful and interesting. And somebody said the funniest thing to me, about me the other day. Um, and I imagine she may be watching on the live stream. So hello. Um, I was teaching. And uh, at the end of the class, there was time for just a couple of questions. So this woman raised her hands and she said, I've been researching you on the internet. And I thought, okay. And she said, the thing I can't figure out is, are you a disciple of New Curly Baba or not? She said, some articles say you are, and some articles say you're not. And I was just about hysterical. <laughs> First of all, I mean, why are you researching me on the internet? <laughs> but uh, it's a funny distinction, you know, like I, um, as I told her, you know, I, I uh, Krishnadas and I in teaching together often tell the same story, each from our own angle. His angle was, you know, Ramdas was there, and um, there were a number of people who decided they were going to go in search of Maharaji named Kroli Baba, and there were a number of us who did not get on the bus. So the next time I saw anyone who got on the bus, they were no longer Linda or Jeffrey. They were Mirabai and Krishnadas, and, uh, and they have a whole story, which is not my story, because I was one of the people who did not get on the bus, so... Every once in a while, he teases me or I tease him. And the last thing I said to him was, I just couldn't imagine. Like, you didn't even know where he was. Like, I wasn't going to get on the bus, you know? Like, you didn't know where you were going. And I said, how long did it take you to find him? And he said, 10 hours. So it was not to be. That's funny. So this whole theme of generosity, as I said, if you were here in the opening, is something that, Sharon and I talked about and that she thought would be a worthy subject, which it certainly has been, right? This retreat. Um, I guess, although we've covered quite a bit, there's things that I uh, noticed that we didn't really cover because I've really thoroughly read some of the 
articles that you've written about it. Uh, and But the basic thing, and, and more than one of you has mentioned, that that the cultivation of generosity is the beginning of spiritual awakening. I mean, that's a huge statement. And, and it's the beginning of the path. And when the Buddha taught, he began with generosity. Can you maybe just flesh out a little bit about the beginning of spiritual awakening? Because you do talk about how integral it is in so many different aspects of practice. Yeah, I mean, it, it is... Um you know, when I used that image the other night or the other day of uh, the Bodhisattva reaching his hand over his knee and touching the earth, and the earth bearing witness by shaking, the earth bearing witness to the many lifetimes in which he had cultivated these qualities, which created this kind of moral force, which opened up the sense of possibility that he really could think about an aspiration so immense as unconditional love, as boundless wisdom, and so on. Um, the first of these qualities is generosity. And that's why they say it's the beginning of, of the spiritual path. And they say the reason the Buddha always started by talking about generosity is because everybody has something to give. If not materially, then energetically. Everybody has something to give. And in the course of looking at life, which is the same as looking at your mind, um, we see everything. We see some beautiful, exhilarating, wondrous things we can hardly believe we are capable of experiencing. And we also see uh, some really difficult and um, not that eagerly sought kind of experiences. Everything happens, like everything. And so the, the question is in the nature of the seeing. How are we seeing? And part of that seeing needs to be with an open heart, with an open mind, um, with some energy, you know, not being so like demoralized or judgmental, um, then it's really a path, no matter what we're looking at, the glorious or the difficult, it's, it's really part of the path. So how do we help create that kind of vessel, um, that openness, that, that clarity, that comfort, that ability to be with anything? And generosity is considered a major, major component of that. Because, as Joseph said the other day, it makes us really happy. And it's the right kind of happiness. Because we can take that with us into, into anything. I remember at the end of the first years of our three-month annual retreat at Insight Meditation Society that we taught together for about a decade and then it continued for some more decades and I moved out to Spirit Rock. Um, we would be really tired at the end of three months. And in the beginning, we not only sat with the students who were practicing, but we did these individual meetings with them. And three months of that was pretty exhausting. And then in the, and toward the end, we, we figured out that we should actually have an integration period or what we call disintegration week, something like that. Um, and we showed a sometimes we showed films in the early days, and one of them was this beautiful BBC film about Mother Teresa. And we showed a film about Martin Luther King and so forth. And there's a scene in there in which they're serving in this beautiful way in the Kali Temple, in the home for um, <clears throat> what they called in India, the home for dying destitutes, which was basically that they would pick people up off the street who had no home, 
and bring them in and care for them, those who are dying, and make it a hospice. And it was, to go in there was extremely moving and beautiful, but also very demanding. And then there was a nun that was helping to run it with Mother Teresa, and it was written on the blackboard. And she said, Mother said, you should let them eat you up. That was, you remember that? And so at the end of the retreat, we decided we would have another retreat at, over Christmas and New Year's, and we'd be <laughs> exhausted. And then Joseph would say, Mother said, let them eat you up. <laughs> and I, I want to say, um, of course, we were young and foolish as opposed to now old and foolish, but um, that I found, I learned a lot about generosity from Joseph and Sharon. Um, generosity of heart, generosity of showing up year after year, and for people, you know, from Sharon, I learned so much about metta and, um, and integrity. Um, and it was really th th something so generous. And from Joseph, a kind of devotion to not just to emptiness, but to, and clarity, which is so beautiful, but to really wanting people to understand and doing it over and over and over and over again. Um, and um, there was a kind of field that grew, and maybe it's because we got it from our teachers, that they were enormously generous. And when you're with somebody that's like overflowing with that, you know, that line from Rumi walking out of the treasury building, I feel generous, our teachers were like treasuries. And then I, I learned that from being with the two of you. And really, the question that I asked in terms of what attracted you to Ramdas and all, that's a big, big part of it is the way I see it. You, you, the generosity of heart, right? He came back and what he did, and then, of course, you didn't even know who he was then, and you met him, but you obviously, as soon as you did meet him, you got that, and vice versa. I mean, that's how this whole thing has happened, absolutely, through that. Um, let me ask you something, Joseph. There, there's, um, I, just, I just want to reiterate something which we've said quite a few times, but just this is the next to last day. Generosity really does make us happy. So as Thich Nhat Hanh says, happiness is available. Please help yourselves to it. <laughs> And it's really so simple, you know. Also, uh, just the strength of generosity around, and one of the big things you talked about Saturday morning, of course, was impermanence, change, and, and the fact is that the power of generosity towards oneself, perhaps, is a, is a, a primary way to, to let go. No? I mean, talk about that. Well, I think it works both ways. I mean, in a very obvious way, generosity is a letting go. It's like we have something, again, whether it's material or energy or attention, whatever it is, in the act of generosity, we are letting go. We're, we're offering, and so we're actually strengthening and cultivating the non-grasping mind, the mind that's not holding on. There is a practice there, then. I think I'm trying to get more to what our dialectic was the other day a little bit. It's definitely a practice, and, and the, more, the more we do it, the easier it gets and the more joyful it gets. Um, 
It's another one of those moments, and it's it's it is coming. <laughs> it is coming. Generosity is clearly the letting go. Um, and when we don't, <laughs> we see that. So we're bringing in mindfulness. So that that's also very much part of this, right? Well, definitely. I mean, mindfulness shows us the opportunity. It'll come. <laughs> this, this, there was some. There was some. That generosity is obviously letting go. And there was something. The reverse of that. But okay. <laughs> See, this is the generosity in my mind of letting go. <laughs> and actually, uh, no, I'll leave that. <laughs> um, Come on, help me out, Jack. <laughs> that's what friends are for. <laughs> what he was going to say is. <laughs> it was really good. <laughs> well, one of the beautiful things that you've taught from the beginning, Joseph. One of the first um, Dharma talks that you gave many times <laughs> was the path to happiness, the seven stages of happiness, and it started with generosity and said, people want to be happy, here's the recipe, and you would go through it, generosity and um, integrity or virtue, you know, and quieting the mind and loving, and um, it was so straightforward and so simple say, you want to be happy, here's how you do it. And generosity is kind of the core of that to start with. And just, this is not what I was about to say, but uh, this is a, uh, to, give you, to give you a sense of actually how it's on with leading in the whole spiritual path. The Buddha talked of how happiness is the condition, or one of the important conditions for the arising of concentration. If the mind is very disturbed or agitated, very difficult to concentrate. When the mind is happy, it settles into concentration quite easily. And so if we can do practices actually that make us happy and joyful, and then practice concentration, we settle into that more easily. Out of concentration, wisdom comes. Out of wisdom comes liberation. So there is quite a systematic path uh, to follow where generosity, happiness, concentration all lead to one another. So, as I'm reading, Sharon, if we practice joyful giving, we experience confidence, we grow in self-esteem, self-respect, and well-being because we continually test our limits. So, I'm, I'm going to tell a story that happened to me while being with Maharaji that's extraordinarily embarrassing, but I'm going to tell it anyhow, because it's kind of been a rudder around this very statement my whole life. We were in India with Ram Das and Ramesh, who's back there, Krishnadas, and a bunch of others. Ramesh, who's a photographer, decided to make beautiful stamps with Maharaji's picture on them. 
and generously he gave them to all of us to, to have. And we'd carry them around, and then every once in a while, Maharaji got wind of this, and he'd start asking people for stamps, and they'd give him the stamps, and there'd be a bunch of people around, instead of giving everyone two, he gave them all to the one person you wondered, why did he give it to that person? I don't know. Then one day, he asked for stamps again. I was sitting across from, not more than 10 or 15 feet from him, waiting, he was with some Indian devotees, and we were waiting for him to call us up. He says, anybody got any stamps? This is all through the translators. And I said, yeah. And I took them out and I ripped them in half and gave him half. <laughs> As I went up and gave him that half, you see, Krishnadas also did something weird and said Maharaji was if he had a you know, really sour-tasting pickle in his mouth, and he went, nah! And he threw them back at me. That led me to about a week of uh, which way I would commit suicide, because I am the worst person in the world, etc., etc. After that week, he again asked one day, and I happened to have those same stamps, have you got any stamps? This time I took the whole thing, everything I had, I would have... And, and gave it to him, and he turned and he gave it to somebody, and on a beat, he turned back to me and he went, that has lasted to this second, okay? Every time I'm involved in any kind of uh, intent to give, to be generous, or on any level, that is always there. And so I guess in some way I was fortunate to get sort of a baseball bat over the head around that particular subject. But, um, yeah, can you, yes. Oh, thank you. I remembered. <laughs> so, so before I forget. Okay, go. <laughs> Got it. Quick. Quick is, quick is right. <laughs> <laughs> that can approach generosity from two sides. Generosity is the letting go, and you see the impermanence in the act of generosity. But actually, our deepening understanding of impermanence, just through our own practice and in our life, of seeing that things are arising and passing all the time, Make genero makes generosity a lot easier. The insight into impermanence strengthens the quality of generosity because we see whatever it is that we thought we wanted or holding on to, the deeper our understanding of the impermanence, the flow of it all, we realize that whatever that is that we're so attached to, is not going to last in one way or another and is not going to provide that lasting happiness that we think it is. And the more we understand that, it becomes so easy to give even things that we really love. Uh, uh, so I'll just give you one example, and I think it's... I think you will be able to relate to this many, many aspects of your lives. You know, mostly when we look ahead, 
into our future, we're thinking, oh, if I get this or have this or do this, it'll really make us happy. <laughs> and so we're always living our lives, you know, in that kind of wanting or desire for something, thinking it's going to make us happy. And yet I think almost all of us have had the experience that all of these experiences, after they're gone, you know, when they're in the past, all of your past experience, even the highlights of your life, now when we think of them, don't they seem very ephemeral? And everything that we were so obsessed about as a future aspiration, once they're in the past, just the ephemeral nature of it all. So seeing that over and over again, it really, it really helps us in this impulse to share and to be generous. So just as an example, I once somebody had given me this really beautiful wooden carved Buddha. It was from Thailand and, you know, maybe a hundred years, two hundred years old. I loved it. You know, and then there was a certain situation and I had the thought to give it to somebody. And I really loved this Buddha. And because of the practice, which I had mentioned, I just did it. With regard to my happiness, the giving of it, the losing of it, so to speak, did not make the slightest bit of difference. Not the slightest. And in fact, the act of giving created the happiness. And so it was just an understanding, when we really understand the impermanence of all of life, it becomes so easy just to give and to pass on. And, to, and then we're just in this flow, you know, of giving and receiving, and it gets very um, joyful. Sharon, you, you thought of the theme for this week, I believe, yes? generosity in conversation yeah. with you and Raghu together what were you thinking <laughs> that I can't remember but I'll tell you what I'm thinking now <laughs> um, I've been thinking about uh, how many of us live because of not necessarily actual possessions but clinging and attachment as well as possessions we're kind of psychological hoarders you know, and there's not a lot of space in there because it's so cluttered, you know, with everything we think we need and uh, what we need to insist on, how someone else has to behave and how we have to ward off change and, you know, uh, never die and like all these things that uh, they take up a lot of space. And so generosity is, is almost like um, it's the emptying out in a way and it's very spacious, it's very open, which is why it's so creative. And that made me think of you, Jack. Um, as having a tremendously creative mind. And um, we actually, the three of us, were, I believe, the first meditators ever really studied in the States. Is that right? When Jack Angler and Ken Wilbur and uh, Dan Brown came to IMS. And this was before fMRIs and before those. So they just had like Rorschachs and other things to test us with. And... Uh, one of the things that I heard about Jack's Rorschach was that he couldn't stop. 
he had an infinite amount of associations <laughs> because his mind's so creative and open. It was just like, and another one, and another one, and another one. And they had to stop him, which was very some, interesting. Some kind of pathology there, I'm sure. <laughs> I don't think so. I admire it, actually. I thought, oh, you know, I probably said one thing. Oh, yeah. There's two bears dancing. Um, and he was still, he'd still be going on if they didn't. Um, you know, but there's something about that kind of generosity that it's just openness and, and not so much clinging and clutching and needing things to be a certain way that really is the, I think it is the avenue for creativity to, to arise. I gave you um, a little silver locket with yeah. Maharaji's yeah. ashes in it way back in yeah. the day. Do you yeah. still have it? I do. The um, chain just broke, but I carry it's with me everywhere. <laughs> oh. Yeah. See, now that is a really sweet moment because it was like 35 years ago and she still has it. Now that makes me really happy. <laughs> That's sweet. You are a devotee of Neem Karoli. Yeah, I, well, I didn't get a new chain yet, so I'm not I'm a fan of devotee. You know. <laughs> um, can I add one thing, Raghu? Yeah, may I? Um, one of my favorite... Um, beloved um, Buddhist elders and figures is a man in Sri Lanka named um, Ari Ratana, Ari, who's in his late 80s now. And he's kind of the Gandhi of Sri Lanka, um, nominated for the Nobel Prize, all kinds of special things. And he was a school teacher um, at the most exclusive prep school in the capital, um, in Colombo. Um, and he could feel the kind of economic injustice that was part of their society, as big surprise we have. Um, some very, very poor villages, and then people who his students were the children of generals and ministers and things like that. So he took them out to one of the poorest, lowest caste, if you will, villages in Sri Lanka. But he didn't take them out to help. He took them out to learn. He took them out, you know, to meet these people and to assist them a little bit. But mostly he wanted the villagers to show them what they knew. And they taught them how to cut cane and how to open coconuts and make the special kind of curry of that village and how to, you know, how to use a machete and how to do all these kind of things. And then the villagers who were, this was one of the poorest areas of Sri Lanka, a really poor village, put on a huge banquet for these kids. And there was something about that exchange which wasn't, okay, I'm going to help poor you, but rather I'm going to see the beauty that you carry and I'm going to invite that to come forth from you, that kind of dignity. And out of that he developed this community called Sarvodia that now is in the majority of villages in the entire country, D digging wells, building schools, do building roads, and he says, we don't build schools and roads to build schools and roads. We dig wells and build schools to teach people to love each other. Um, and so there's something in generosity about the joy of allowing someone else also to feel their own generosity and their own dignity. That's very important and beautiful. Just to, to build on that, which is really, I think, an important uh, learning for us all, uh, as part of the practice of generosity, it's also the practice of receiving, you know. 
and being able to receive with graciousness and with love. And for a lot of people, that's difficult. You know, some, some people find it easy to give and not so easy to receive. And that's as much a part of the practice as the actual giving. Um, so it'd be worth exploring if, if you find that that's a difficulty in your life, to realize that that's, that's a really essential part of the practice. Yeah. One thing we uh, have not really brought up that's certainly part of... Well, actually, before I go there, I'm sort of uh, on the edge here after I told that story of uh, the half the stamps and dealing with that and having that in my consciousness all this time related. But is it that you talk a lot about the... Again, I'm going back to the practice of generosity and the way that we can use mindfulness, awareness in, in just those kinds of situations. I couldn't do it at that point. I had no tools, I had no skill set. Mm -hmm. But we do have one now. Maybe talk about what that skill set. Well, part of that skill set, I think, is, and I, I must tag that on to what I said before, is accepting that people are the way that they are. It doesn't mean we enjoy it always, including ourselves. But it's an understanding that um, conditions have come together in a certain way for certain habits or certain patterns. Um, and that, you know, were I to project fear into what you said, like, I might run out of stamps. There have never been enough stamps in my life, you know. People don't usually give me things, I, you know, like whatever it is. Uh, then that's the arising of a lot of compassion. You know, that's not like you know, what a miserly person and it's just a stupid stamp and you can't, you know, it's not like that. Um, you just understand all the conditions that come together for us to be so disconnected or withholding or alone feeling and, and uh, so many things. And um, I sometimes teach with this friend, Sylvia Borstein, who's a wonderful teacher. She's 82, I think now. And... Um, Sylvia, one of her favorite sayings is, everybody's just doing the best that they can. And I sit there and think, I don't get that. You know, like, <laughs> I know, but really, you know, like, they could do a lot better as far as I'm concerned, you know, like, and she'll say it over and over again. Everyone's just doing the best that they can. Um, and then I read Maya Angelou's version of that, which was something like, uh, when you see better, you do better. And I said, of course it's true, and I knew it was true, and Sylvia said it too, but we just had fun together, you know. Um, that we're all doing the best that we can, and thank goodness, I mean, what an amazing thing to have a sense of a path, that there are ways to uh, not stay stuck and, and to break free of habit and, and to find a kind of happiness that is not conventional. It just isn't. And... Um, some teachers call it happiness for no good reason, which means it's not going to be destroyed, you know, as the particular reason fades. Um, you know, it, and that, I think, is almost the most important thing of all, is having a sense of a path. So congratulations. <laughs> you know, you went all the way to India so long ago. And you also inspired a lot of other people to go to India through your radio show, which we were just talking about. And... 
Um, I, I would think if anything, the the response is a kind of compassion. It's like you looking back at yourself, like, wow, look at that. And, and uh, us hearing your story or finding it in ourselves, like I can think of that story too, you know. Um, it is a doorway to compassion. How do we get kinder towards ourselves? I have this wonderful poem. Maybe I'll read it now. You all know it, I think, quite well. Naomi Shihab Nye. About kindness. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go, so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride, thinking the bus will never stop, the passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for and then goes with you everywhere, like a shadow or a friend. Kindness, yeah. How do we start to approach that towards ourselves, first off? I wasn't very kind to myself in the story that I told, at all. You know, in the, in the Buddhist tradition, Sharon, uh, sort of embodies this, the teaching of metta, which is often translated as loving-kindness. And for myself, I like to emphasize the kindness part more, because I feel that in English, the word love is so loaded. You know, it's such it's a word that is used in so many ways and has so many different uh, connotations and am I loving enough or what do we even mean by that? Whereas kindness for me is just very down-to-earth. It's a very down-to-earth quality. It's easy to understand and it's easy to hold the question in this moment, am I being kind? I don't think that's hard to determine. You know, because, because the word itself is so 
as I say, down to earth and and basic. Um, so that would be an interesting an interesting question to hold in the heart. And one area where it could be practiced with tremendous benefit and would also tremendously enhance the power and depth of mindfulness is in the arena of speech. You know, we speak so much, we say so many words, and besides Sampapalapa, <laughs> Just before we speak, could we hold the question in our mind, is this being kind? You know, is the motivation a kindly one? That would change a lot. You know, it, it would so impact our energy, our own inner space. It would so impact our relationships. You know, and when we see we're about to say something that is not kind, realize we don't have to say it. You know, and so I think the application and the practice of kindness is not difficult to do at all. It's simply difficult to remember to ask that question. You know, am I being kind? Um, so I think it's simpler than we might think. I think it's a, really a question of remembering. Yeah, kindness, again, backing it into my experience was so unkind to myself. Jack, just maybe... You so, a couple things on two different levels. First, as many of you know, um, as, as these mindfulness teachings have spread so widely, they've gone in different forms, mindfulness-based stress reduction and mindfulness in other ways. And one of the ones that's spreading very widely is mindful self-compassion from Chris Germer and Kristen Neff. And part of the reason that it's spreading so widely is because um, there's an epidemic in, in our culture of people who are unkind to themselves or who judge themselves really harshly. Um, and um, we had this famous meeting with some of us with the Dalai Lama decades ago asking about self-hatred and he couldn't understand the word. There's no word for self-hatred in Tibetan, apparently. He's going back and forth with translator. Mm, what could this mean? Finally, he got it. And he said, mm, but this is a mistake. You know, <laughs> why would you do this? But um, we tend to think that um, compassion or even kindness, we tend to focus it outwardly. Um, but the circle that really illuminates or opens the heart has to include ourselves, is this kind for us as well as for another? And then, then that gesture of kindness becomes real. And in some way in your, in your stamp sadhana, yes, um, you learned a lot about kindness and generosity, but also in some way, you know, can you hold that and all that? Can you hold the, the folly of, of our life and our fears and so forth? All of that with kindness, you know. And that's it, because we're, we're all, what, what does Sylvia say? We're all doing the best we can, right? The best that we can. <laughs> then there's one other thing I want to ask, and it's, you know, with Sharon and Joseph and sort of changing the levels of the conversation in a certain way. Um, 
and it connects with what Ramdas in his often pithy and brilliant way of of articulating things i remember decades ago when you would talk about how the the fact is that we're all just accountants in the firm you remember that phrase ramdas you know that we actually think we own things that it's mine my stuff or my whatever it is when it's all really quite temporary you know it's like the very rich wealthy guy who had this big estate in the neighborhood and finally he died and they were talking about him and somebody said well how much did he leave and the other person said well everything of course that's what you leave you know um we're accountants in the firm and from that place which is really the place of loving awareness of not identifying with our personality or our body or you know the things that we have then generosity becomes a different thing it becomes like we're able to play with the things of the world because we're not identified with them and we see them as more energy that comes and goes and there's gain and loss and pleasure and pain um and i wonder if my dear beloved wise colleagues like Sharon Joseph would say anything more about that yes Yes, one of them wants to jump in here <laughs> while it's here. While it's here, yeah. I, so, this whole topic really brings together um, the union of generosity and love and compassion and kindness and mindfulness. So, for example, as we have all these self-judging thoughts or self-condemning thoughts. it's not even so much wanting to change the pattern because the patterns will be there for however long they're there but can we be mindful of that thought as it's arising in the mind and see it as a thought so i'm such a terrible person oh thinking you know or judging and sometimes it's fun to actually create a little cartoon character in the mind the judge you know the grouch or the whatever the thought is and what i'm about to say has has been for me one of the most um awakening applications of mindfulness uh and i find it just completely fascinating So we have all of these thoughts some are beautiful and uplifting and some are not you know whether it's directed to ourselves or others and most of the time we are looking at and reacting to the content of the thought oh this is this is a great thought and it's well this is a terrible thought it's very rare that people will ask the question what is a thought not what is the thought saying but what is a thought as a phenomenon and i find this completely fascinating because the endless thoughts are going through our minds mostly we're just caught up in the story of them all one way or another liking or not liking but as we can remember as these thoughts are arising 
Well, what exactly is a thought as a phenomena? Begin to see that a thought as a thought is completely insubstantial. A thought is little more than nothing. It's like a little energy blip that goes through the mind, but we get seduced by the content and are forgetting or not realizing that thought itself is barely more than nothing. Once we begin to understand this ephemeral, say, empty nature of thought, that gives us a tremendous freedom then to discern, is this thought worth following? Or shall I just let this thought go? It's not helpful. Because we've seen the empty nature of thought itself. And so what's so amazing about our lives is that when we're unaware of either the fact that we're thinking or the very nature of thought, thoughts dominate our lives. They're like little dictators in the mind. You know, the thoughts are arising, go here, go there, do this, do that. Judge yourself, don't judge yourself. And the thoughts are driving us crazy. <laughs> and they have all this power as long as we're not aware of the nature of thought, as soon as we see, oh, this is just a thought, it's, there's nothing here. It loses all its power. And so this is the great liberating force of both investigation and awareness, right? So we're no longer seduced by the content in the story, whatever our particular stories are, so it's, it's, it reminds me a little bit of the story in The Wizard of Oz, you know, and the wizard, the all-powerful wizard, and dominating the scene, dominating Oz. And what is it? Is little Toto pulls away the curtain. You know, it's just this guy playing with some levers, and, you know, the, the illusion, the mask is taken off. There's nothing much there. We can do that with our own thoughts by just asking the question, what is a thought? So I would highly recommend you play with that because it's powerfully transforming when we see this. Beautiful. Yeah, please. Maybe we could all name our guys. Sure. <laughs> so this is a story I've often told that Raghu uh, it came up in Raghu's mind as well, which is sort of the um, almost like a foundational or preliminary step to what Joseph was just saying. And uh, so what I sometimes urge people is if you have a persistent negative thought, like a really, really fierce inner critic, that's not like a helpful one, give it a name, give it a persona, maybe give it a wardrobe. Because everything is going to be about how we relate to it. That's the point. Not is it present or absent. Not how often does it come, but how do we relate to it when we come. And somehow giving a, that sense of a, a beingness, you know, uh, can help. So the story is about um, this time a friend rented a house for Joseph and I and several friends to move into and do a retreat. And when I went into the... Um, bedroom that had been set aside for me. I saw someone had left a cartoon 
on the desk from the Peanuts comic strip. And in the first frame of the cartoon, Lucy is talking to Charlie Brown and she says, you know, Charlie Brown, what your problem is, the problem with you is that you're you. <laughs> and then in the second frame, poor Charlie Brown says, well, what in the world can I do about that? Then in the third and final frame, Lucy says, I don't pretend to be able to give advice. I merely point out the problem. <laughs> so I named my inner critic Lucy. Um, with apologies to any Lucy's who may be listening or watching. Um, based on that character. And uh, it was very interesting because my training, by that point, years of training in mindfulness, gave me a way of relating to Lucy. So very soon after I saw the cartoon, something happened. Something wonderful happened for me. And my very first thought was, it's never going to happen again. And I, yeah, I know, <laughs> I greeted that with, hi, Lucy. <laughs> and my favorite form of that was, chill out, Lucy, chill out. <laughs> That's different than, you're right, Lucy, you're always right. <laughs> and it's also different than, I cannot believe Lucy is still here. I've, you know, been meditating all these years. I've spent all this money in therapy just last year. Like, why is Lucy still here? I'm such a failure, right? So we say mindfulness slices right down the middle of, just getting consumed by something or rejecting it and pushing it away. It's like, hi, Lucy. <laughs> so the um, vastly oversimplified form of a Tibetan practice would say invite Lucy for dinner. <laughs> don't give her the run of the house because that could be dangerous, but you don't have to be so scared. You don't have to be so freaked out. You don't have to be so ashamed of Lucy visiting because in some ways what you're asserting is that your awareness is so much stronger than that visiting voice, however often she visits, right? So invite her in for a meal. So I said that in front of a group of people and someone didn't like it. And I said, okay, how about a cup of tea? And this person said, how about a cup of tea to go? <laughs> and I said, okay, if that's the extent of your hospitality, invite Lucy in for a cup of tea to go, you know, whatever. Um, but you get it, right? It's, it's all about that relationship and we, we get so upset because Lucy's still here and, and those thoughts are still nasty or you know, we still have anxiety or whatever it is, but it actually is not the most relevant consideration. How are we with it is, is totally in our hands and it's very empowering to realize that. That's what we can do is change our relationship. It, it reminded me a little bit, you know, speaking of kind speech and then kind speech to ourselves, exactly. right? I mean, exactly. how Sharon is talking about talking to Lucy, exactly. right? So just a, a PS to that and something that uh, I know you're all well aware of, but I think one of the key elements of a spiritual path is a sense of humor. <laughs> yeah, and having a sense of humor just particularly about our own minds. Uh, once had a meditator come into a, a meeting who had just been through a lot and kind of his report on his practice was, you know, the mind has no pride. <laughs> It'll do anything. It'll put, bring anything up. Can we have a sense of humor about it in just the same way? Do you have a name at all? Well, no, when, but when the, when the judging thoughts come, I'll, you know, sometimes I've named them. Sometimes I just say, thank you for your opinion. <laughs> uh, I'm okay for now, you know. 
Um, thank you. Thank you for looking at because they're trying to. Thank you for trying to protect me. I'm all right for now. Thank you. And that's that also that's, works. That's beautiful. Uh, but Ramdas, you say, "How did I get here?" <laughs> I love that too. Um, well, we have these extraordinary meditation teachers all up here, and it seems odd that we should have a little meditation. But can we, maybe a couple of minutes each, there'd be something new. It's like round-robin <laughs> meditation. On your mark, get set. <laughs> we have only a few minutes. So yeah, well, we can go over. We can go over? All right, you're the boss. So what's what are we doing? Well, you start, and let's just see if somebody has a little something to add in. <laughs> so let yourself sit comfortably. This is the way Joseph began to teach meditation 40 years ago. He, he was a Taoist then, and his, his energy was, you know, let things flow with the Tao, not to make or become, just to be. So let your eyes close gently if you're comfortable and sense yourself seated halfway between heaven and earth in this human form under your own tree of enlightenment. <coughs> And bring a kind attention to this mysterious human body you've been given. Loving awareness to this body. Oh, let the eyes and face be soft. And the shoulders relax. And the hands rest easily. You take your seat as the Buddha that you are in the midst of it all. And let the heart be soft as well to receive all that arises, all the thoughts and sounds and sensations, as if with a bow, a gesture, thank you, and you are still in the midst of it. You are the spacious, loving awareness. Relax into this awareness. Trust it. It is your home. As you're resting in awareness, become aware of all the different sounds that are arising. Become aware of hearing. Very simple, there's nothing to do, nothing to be, nothing to have. The sound arising in the open space of awareness. Not trying to name the sound or figure out what's making it, but simply becoming aware of the experience of hearing. Settle back. Relaxed, nothing to want, nothing to become, just hearing. 
as you're aware of hearing in this very effortless way, completely simple, hearing is happening. And now, can you find what's knowing the sound? Hearing is there, it's obvious, sounds coming and going. But can you find what's knowing the sound? This is the great mystery of awareness. There's nothing to find, and yet hearing is happening, knowing is happening. This is the union of emptiness and awareness, inseparable. the aware nature of emptiness. So I want to end this sitting in a very classical Buddhist fashion, which is called sharing merit. So the idea is that when we do something toward the good, we're kind, we're generous, we're restrained, like it would be awfully easy to tell a lie, but we don't. We practice meditation, we think, we wonder, we try to understand life more deeply. All of these produce a very positive energy, and the point isn't to kind of produce the energy and go home and think, wow, I have so much merit, but to dedicate it, to offer it to others. So the first step is actually feeling it, feeling it in your body. We got to be in Hawaii, so that's great, but there are a lot of ways of spending this time, and they don't all involve travel and effort and, you know, not always maybe being totally comfortable and and for some, you know, very unfamiliar terrain of, of looking and examining things. And so it's not conceit or arrogance, it's taking delight in goodness. Like, here we are, wow. This was our choice. And then we take that positive sense, that positive feeling, and we offer it to those who've helped us. There are people certainly helping us while we're here, and there are people who helped us get here right now and long ago. So just see who comes to mind, and you can silently repeat whatever words make sense to you. I use words like, I share the merit of my practice with you. I share the power of my practice with you. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. Remember, the words are, are the conveyors of, of the heart's energy. So even if the words aren't great and perfect, doesn't matter. Whoever comes to mind who's helped you. And those whom you know are struggling or suffering right now, it's an affirmation of the fact that our inner work could never really be just be for ourselves alone, but it's about connection.
I offer the merit of my practice to you. May you be happy, be peaceful. And to one another as we've co-created this experience. And all beings everywhere. I offer the power of my practice to all beings. May all beings be happy. May all beings be peaceful. So thank you. Thank you all really so much. Thank you, Raghu. Thank you, Sharon. Thank you. Somebody Jack must have won Joseph. the bell, right? Uh, oh, yes. We have. <laughs> you know, here, here, instead of a bell, though, uh, just remembering something you said. Now, you'll have to correct me if I'm not getting it right, but in, uh, it was on Saturday morning, I believe, maybe. You said, etched on emptiness, how can I help? Do you remember that? You said it really quickly, and I thought, well, I bet he doesn't even realize. Etched on emptiness. How, talking about Ram Dass's book, and just at that, to me it was, there is nothing else to do. Nothing. Once you've realized. So that's where emptiness, love, mm -hmm. right, all come together. Thank you so much, Joseph and Jack. Thank you, Raghu. Sharon, to have you all here, just unbelievable. Just unbelievable.